You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we'll get into the program straight away. Uh, We're going to uh, first off uh, hear from Dr. Ginayini Gondara, OAM, who was the the impetus of a film that came out recently called uh, Luku Garara, The Law of the Land, a very important uh, film around uh, uh, First Nations' voice in regard to uh, white law and Indigenous law, very important uh, film, and uh, it's coming out streaming later in the year. I think it's uh, going to be in November that's going to be available by streaming. But uh, he put out a statement. He's a uh, a lawman for his uh, Nulung people in uh, the Northern Territory, and he's put out a statement, uh, which I'm going to read, and uh, we'll hear his uh, YouTube statement as well. You can I'll put the link to his uh, YouTube statement in our podcast so that you can follow it up for yourself. Uh, there is a translation to the uh, Indigenous language part of the uh, piece. But uh, he it's around his views uh, to do with the voice. So uh, that's why it's particularly important right at the moment. Uh, We're going to follow that up with a conversation I had with Paul Farrell. Paul Farrell is an ABC journalist, uh, works for the 7.30 Report, and he's an investigative journalist, and he's recently put out a... Uh, in the National Interest, which is a Monash University uh, publication, a university press publication. It's called Gladys, A Leader's Undoing. It's an interesting discussion about uh, journalists, uh, governments, uh, leaders and ICAC. So I thought you'd be interested in what's going on in that sphere. Uh, You can uh, obviously uh, buy the uh, text Uh, and uh, we'll hear what he had to say about his part in the bringing down of Gladys Berejiklian. This is the week that was follows. We go with Extinction Rebellion on Friday the 15th of September. They rallied walking up uh, William Street. You can imagine uh, at uh, peak hour on a Friday night walking up uh, William Street, stopping at uh, Burke Street, to uh, tell the instrument government instrumentality that uh, it's uh, time to stop the crazy idea of seismic blasting in the Otways. So we'll hear from a few speakers there and about what their intentions were. 
Uh, we finished that with a little chat with Sean Sinclair, who's part of CAF, who are uh, organising a sunshine rally, a rally in sunshine against Nazis. Uh, today at 2pm, so she's going to give us a little bit of a, a rundown about what's going on. Before we get kickoff, I just wanted to uh, make a few uh, um, announcements. One of them is around the, or uh, an opinion really, a little opinion piece really, plus um, uh, telling you about an event that's coming up. The news that the Victorian government intends to raise the public housing towers starting in Carlton in the name of stopping the housing crisis is actually shocking. A declaration of war on public housing tenants, the government's public-private partnership approach to affordable social housing, and Dr even mentioned public housing, has failed to put even a dent on the housing crisis or skyrocketing rents despite being in play for over a decade. An approach backed by both major parties, I'll add. It has handed over prime real estate to developers and private business, increased construction jobs, ensuring continued Australian reputation of shoddy building housing stock, broken up communities and left the most vulnerable without housing. In this round, 10,000 people, public housing tenants, were put into high anxiety overnight with a newspaper story putting pay to governmental sham consultation processes. The Carlton residents are having a public meeting on Tuesday the 26th of December at 2pm. It's at 480 Ligon Street Community Rooms. They say come together to understand more about the housing changes to Carlton Estate in the coming years. Speak to your concerns. Ask questions to Homes Victoria DFH. Hear from other residents. Learn more about the rebuild. Um, all Carlton Housing Estate residents are welcome. Um, the uh, also coming up is Stop Black Deaths in Custody National Day of Action, Saturday the 7th of October, 1pm State Library, two uh, issues that uh, should be on your radar. Um, also on the 26th, Tuesday the 26th, there's going to be a public forum at 6.30pm. This is a public forum. Um, housing, Climate, Cost of Living, AUKUS, Refugees. It's at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanston Street. It's across the road from the State Library. OK, we'll uh, kick off with an announcement. Sovereignty in the Time of the Voice. A panel discussion delving into the fight for First Nations justice against the backdrop of the colonial system attempting to diminish our power. Featuring MC Shirley Hood, Professor Chelsea Wadigo, Senator Lydia Forbes, and President Kieran Stewart Ashton of the Black People's Union. 6.30pm, Thursday 28th September at the Capitol Theatre, Swanston Street. Tickets are on a sliding scale via Eventbrite. Find the event on the Black People's Union's Facebook and Instagram pages. All proceeds to go to the Black Sovereign Movement. Hosted by Black People's Union and Renegade Activists, Free CR supporters.
I got an email from a filmmaker, Sinem Samban, who is the director of uh, the film Law of the Land, uh, important film uh, from Generation Media. And uh, what she was sending out was a public statement and press release from senior initiate, initiated clan leader of the Yulung Nation of Northern East Arnhem Land, Reverend Dr Jinni Yingi Gondara OAM. And he outlines his position on treaty and the upcoming voice referendum. It's dated 20th September 2023, and I thought it was worth your attention. This is what he said. Since the referendum in 1967, when Balanda, non-Indigenous, voted for my people to become citizens of a country we already belong to, you have stripped our leaders of their dignity and authority and you have made us subject to devastating laws and policies that you have forced upon us. For decades, these laws and policies have deprived my people of their basic human rights, access to their land and waters, and their God-given freedom. And now you are forcing upon us a tokenistic solution to the chaos you have created using the same system that has held us hostage from the very beginning. If my people vote yes in your upcoming referendum, it is only because we are grasping for some kind of hope. But it is a false hope. Albanese has said many times that the voice will give, will only serve as an advisory body which will which may or may not affect decisions, that it will have no veto power and that it will not lead to treaty with the Crown. So I ask, what is all this referendum actually for? Is it to make Belinda feel good? Is it to distract us from the prize that many elders have been fighting for most of our lives? Treaty? You cannot cherry-pick who you consult with and then say it is what all Indigenous people want. Most people in remote communities have no idea what this voice is about. The result of this referendum will only reflect what the majority non-Indigenous population of Australia thinks is right for us. In my 78 years living and working in both worlds, I have witnessed the Australian government continuously handpick Indigenous people that behave like the master-slave mirroring what the government says while they ignore the voices of clan leaders and community members who challenge them and the system they are operating under. This is nothing less than dictatorship and the continuation of the dividing and conquering of my people. The yes or no approach you are forcing upon the country divides people into conflicting camps while distracting them from what the real problems are. Your proposed voice cannot represent the voice of all First Nations across Australia because our experiences and needs are not all the same. Centralised decision-making has never worked for us and fails all of humanity. That is why we need our original clan-based leadership and decision-making processes that we have used for tens of thousands of years to be recognised and respected. I question this referendum and the value of the voice that it offers, so I will be voting no. But because of this, you cannot categorise me beside people like Jacinta, 
price or some of the racist voices also saying no. They have their own reasons. This is so much more than just a yes or no situation. Where is our right to choose either? If you have really been following Indigenous rights and the policies affecting my people, you will see that yes is not a step forward in the right direction. It is another step towards the assimilation of our culture and the demeaning of our sovereign and our law, sovereignty and our law. It is also important to see that voting no won't mean a missed opportunity because the voice offers nothing meaningful in the first place. Stop treating us like children and forcing inappropriate solutions upon us that are propped up by mainstream propaganda and funded by corporations that have never cared for our self-governance, our liberty or our freedom. We don't need a saviour. My people have their own pride, their own authority and their own dignity that comes from mundane system of law. If the government is serious about listening to our voice, they will accept the invitation I have put to them for almost 20 years to meet in a neutral space with the political leaders of our sovereign governments and begin the overdue process of real dialogue and negotiation. Colonial system of the government does not satisfy us. It's not the system of government for us. It's got nothing to do with us. And yet, you invite us to become citizens of this nation and the country and the subject of the law. And yet you ignore our law. Our rule of law so that we can follow your law. We are not part of the Jewish. We are, we are not a part of the decision. You've done it to satisfy you, not us. Every Prime Minister that has been elected into this government and the parties are still filing Aboriginal people, the Yolngu people, the First Nation. I call for treaty. Treaty now, as Manda was saying, you to India. Treaty now, I never been happen in his lifetime when he hoped to see a treaty through Yoto Yindi. There must be understanding that we are a sovereign nation. And that system is already there. A different format of election. You know, Yoto Yindi is a term that we use. We 
and I got responsibility to each other. You have to become in power, the lighter there will be when they become in power. So system is there for self-government. It's time that we create a Yuta platform, Yuta Warao, for Marma government to come and sit and talk. And this, chief, this new Prime Minister saying all this, saying all sort of things, telling us this is what he's going to do, telling us this is what he's going to do, and his government. And his word was a strong word for saying, my government will be welcome for your voice in the parliament, instead of saying, my government will be happy to sit and talk to Liangaratmira, to all the Jirika and Dalkara. We didn't hear that. Where are you leading us? Are you leading us into freedom? Are you leading us into self-government? Are you leading us to become the independent nation? Are you leading us where we have our own choice? And we live with that choice. Are you recognize and respect and honor our leaders? What's there for me and my people? Where are you leading us? I tell you, you are leading us into destruction.
land was never given up This land was never bought and sold The planting of the Indian Jack Never changed our lore at all Now two rivers run their course Separated for so long I'm dreaming of a brighter day When the waters will be My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. And you with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, we're going to move on to uh, Paul Farrell. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul Farrell is a journalist for the ABC and he's written the most recent uh, in the National Interest, which is a series that's put out by the Monash University Press. Uh, and uh, as you can um, imagine, it, it is about, uh, they are pieces that, not not very long actually, they're usually about 100 pages, maybe a bit longer, uh, that uh, go through uh, significant political uh, events and uh, they get people who are actively involved in those events to reflect on what has happened. And uh, Paul Farrell's play place in all this is as a person who, as an investigative journalist, who was part of the uh, reviving of uh, ICAC investigations into uh, what turned out to be the sword that uh, Gladys Berejiklian uh, fell upon. Uh, anyway, well, it's called, the piece is called Gladys, A Leader's Undoing, and uh, I had a chat with Paul Farrell about this uh, 
piece of reflection. Congratulations on your piece, uh, Gladys, The Leader's Undoing, but more particularly, congratulations on being the people who actually uh, picked up the thread that uh, really uncovered the uh, smoking gun, I'd say. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, from the point of view of a, uh, an active uh, current affairs journalist on the ABC, uh, you must see the um, press conference uh, government handling of information up close. Can you give my listeners an understanding of that kind of minefield? Press conferences are always really, you know, quite carefully managed sort of affairs. Um, you know, journalists are obviously entitled to ask whatever questions um, that they want. But often there's, um, you know, a, a lot of political journalists are very tied up with the news of the day and that's what they ask about. So it can be really hard to sort of push past that boundary of, you know, what's the news of the day, what's in the political cycle today, and to sort of go beyond it and, and challenge political figures on difficult questions that they don't want to answer. Well, well there's a, a, a sort of a catch-22 going on, really, isn't it? Because uh, being knowledgeable as a political uh, pundit is one thing, but to ensure that they'll actually continue to speak to you, uh, you uh, need to tread a very fine line, don't you? Yeah, and that's something that I um, uh, wrote about a little bit in the book as well, which um, uh, was something that, you know, Gladys Berejiklian was in her office was very good at. They were very good at cultivating these people in the press gallery and building allies there and kind of keeping people close. So it made it very hard for them to be critical and to push their reporting a little bit. And what can often happen is if you do sort of push those boundaries, you, you get frozen out very quickly and, and you lose that level of access. I mean, there's some, there, there are some, and probably not as many as there should be, there are some political reporters that do really, you know, that do manage to strike that balance where they stay independent. But I think a, a lot of political reporters um, do find themselves, you know, a little bit captured by um, politicians' offices on any side of politics, really. Um, it, it's a feature of a, a broader problem in, in the way that uh, some of our reporting systems are structured. Well, it's actually, reading um, your piece... It is a little bit of a reminder of, uh, of say, Louis XV's French court or something. You know, it's a very mannerly arrangement, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. My personal experience is that which I, I wrote about in the book is um, is when um, uh, I had to go to this press conference and, and ask Gladys Berejiklian and some questions about this shooting club grant, which... Um, as you sort of touched on, was one of the issues that ICAC ended up focusing on. And and we were aware that ICAC was looking into this grant at this time. We wanted to try and get some answers from Gladys Berejiklian on it, but, but couldn't. And, you know, when I showed up at this press conference, it was, you've got to sort of let let things go through the motions. There's these sort of unspoken rules that, you know, the politician that convenes it sort of has to, um, you know, gets to say something to kick things off, you know, they'll they'll sort of go, they'll throw to another person and, and, and they'll continue to talk. And then there'll be usually a couple of questions on whatever the topic is that, that they've set for the press conference. And then if you sort of get past all of that, then it's sort of considered acceptable to ask questions on other topics and broader topics. And so you've got to really kind of pick your moment to work around these unspoken rules of um of press conferences 
and to kind of break through them a little bit more. Well, it takes a certain amount of bravery and focus, I suppose. Uh, look, I mean, I, I, I certainly wouldn't um, wouldn't call myself particularly um, brave, but probably more just a little bit nosy and pushy is probably um, a, better, better, um, a, a better sort of descriptors. Um, I, I just think that, you know, if um, I had some questions I wanted to ask and um, uh, I didn't feel like I got the answers from, you know, the written questions that I'd sent to to Gladys Berejiklian's office, and I thought it was quite reasonable that she provide a, an answer to them. So, um, and, and that's what, you know, that's why I went and did at that press conference. And, of course, this is right through COVID. So, of course, there was this uh, mystique around the role, as you call it in the book, that uh, state premiers became rock stars. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, and and that sort of made it an even more of a challenging environment to kind of push through that daily news cycle because it, it was a real sense of crisis and, and emergency, and um, and understandably, people were very focused on their very kind of immediate pressing needs and demands. You know, people were concerned about goods and services that they could get, you know, opening hours, whether particular services were open at all. Um, all of those are really legitimate concerns and issues. Um, but, but that didn't mean that it wasn't also legitimate to ask about other things going on. And, and I think there was certainly a, a massive public interest in, you know, the fact that ICAC was, you know, what, what we were able to piece together is that at that stage that ICAC had been you know, beginning to investigate for some months and, and that its attention was turning on the Premier herself. Before we leave the Premier's office, I wanted to uh, bring up the uh, me- the way they used to manage, or maybe they still do, manage uh, information given out to journalists. Of course, it, the professional skills required uh, mean that you can't actually pontificate on something. You can't say, I've gathered these details and then I'll take, I'll take it one step forward and pretend that this is what the uh, outcome is for those facts. You actually have to have things attributed to particular people. And they were doing a very sneaky thing that uh, sidelined journalists' ability to actually push the, a ball forward, weren't they? They had a particular method. Yeah, and this is something that is common in a lot of political offices now, which is where rather than responding to a, a series of questions, what um, you know, what was certainly something that was one of the, the hallmarks of um, Gladys Berejiklian's office and her responses is that they would not provide any on-the-record response or provide a very limited on-the-record response, but then provide a series of lines in, in what was described as background information. Um, and often in that background information would be a more robust denial of a particular um, matter that was being raised. Um, but the, the challenge with doing that is that it, it kind of warns the journalists off and, and scares them a little bit because, you know, you can have this really robust denial set out uh, in this background text. But um, but it's not actually attributable to that that politician's office or something like that. So so if it, if it turned out that it wasn't quite correct, um, you know, down the line, it was very difficult to contest contest that because one of these kind of rules in journalism is that when a statement is provided on background, it, it, it can't be attributed to that particular person or, or, or entity that, that gives it. It's, it's designed as contextual information. But that contextual information in these cases was was being really stretched beyond the limits of what it ordinarily would be. And, um, and I even interviewed a journalist at The Australian who sort of outlined 
the way that some of that had worked and, and some of their concerns with it. That's that, and that was Yoni Bashan, who was the um, the Australian state political editor at the time. So um, I think this was an issue that concerned a lot of different reporters in a lot of different areas as well. Yeah, yeah, they they were really playing. The politicians were really playing uh, fast and loose. And uh, let's now go to ICAC. I actually, because it was COVID, I actually watched the uh, whole sequence of first interviews in ICAC with that that were made public with Berejiklian, and some of the more grueling ones with, uh, yeah, Daryl Maguire. And you know, in a sense, it's a little bit like watching paint dry. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, but but this is the beauty of it, isn't it? Because you actually do something in your book which I find really great because it contextualizes the uh, methodology of ICAC, and you were talking about their strategy. That was really fascinating. Tell it, tell my listeners about how you saw the ICAC questioning. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, one of the things that um, uh, ICAC is very good at is is kind of building its own case theory or, or, or building a picture of what they think could have or should have happened in relation to a particular series of issues. Because often what ICAC is looking at is something that hasn't something that's gone wrong in a, in the probity system. So it's something that hasn't been declared um, by a politician by um, uh, by a public servant. Um, you know, it's it's these. Um, it's, it's, it's what they're looking at is what, you know, what something that someone should have done um, that they didn't do properly. Someone actually says that it's a permanent royal commission. Yes, yeah. Um, and so what they were trying to do in relation to Gladys Berejiklian and her conduct in relation to a series of matters about Darren Maguire was to create a bit of like a almost a parallel world where they asked different political figures and different um, public servants if you had known that Gladys Berejiklian and Daryl Maguire were in a relationship, if it had been disclosed, would you have acted differently? And for, for many of those politicians and public servants, the answers were yes. And, and that, in some respects, was quite critical to ICAC demonstrating its case theory that there had been a, a potential conflict here and that it did impact or change the way that particular decisions in government had been um, had been made. That, that was one of the ways that they kind of slowly fleshed out this, you know, very complicated and, and, and difficult to tell story. Now tell the listeners about how you and your colleague, uh, you spent many hours ferreting out information. Tell them about, I mean, because this is the not very glamorous part of actually being an investigative journalist. Yeah, yeah. I said to my colleague Alex McDonald. Um, uh, look, I mean, wh what we we were obviously interested in this story when it first broke, and we were trying to work out whether there were any other issues that hadn't been examined in in much detail that we could dig into more. And um, you know, we, we just started doing what any journalist would do, which is to, to go to the documents that ICAC had already tabled and start picking through them and working out whether there was any little threads there that we could tug on and look into things a bit more closely. And, and we stumbled across this reference to the Clay Target shooting, this, this Clay Target grant. And um, ICAC had been looking at it in a little bit because it thought that Daryl Maguire had actually profited from from the purchase of some chairs from this grant, um, <laughs> and, and which was a kind of a very a bizarre side detail. Um, but um, it never really featured in any prominent way in their investigation, and it was a bit of a, a side note. Um, 
but what I was interested in is, well, I, I just thought, well, look, this obviously was something that Darren Maguire cared a lot about. And we just wondered whether, you know, how the, how the decision-making for that grant had occurred. And when we, you know, we dug into that for sort of many weeks and we came to the conclusion that it had gone to this, what's known as the Expenditure Review Committee um, that Gladys Berejiklian sat on at the time and that, um, you know, she would have been involved in approving that funding. And we thought, well, I mean, that seems like that's a clear decision point for Gladys Berejiklian um, to have been involved in. You know, she, she said that she did not disclose her conflict at any point in t- her, her, her relationship with Daryl Maguire. Does that mean there was a conflict there? And, and that's effectively what we produced a, a story on for 7.30, examining that very question. And shortly after we did that story, ICAC announced it was taking some further investigative steps. And, um, uh, and we later learned that one of those investigative steps was looking into this grant and Gladys Berejiklian as well in that decision-making. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we're having a listen to a chat that I did with Paul Farrell, who's written this thing called Gladys, the Leader's Undoing. It's in the National Interest Series from the Monash University Press. It came back out on the 21st of September. This is the second part of that conversation. Berejikling is a a very uh, skilled politician and as you point out she still has a very high approval rating and she brazens things out. It was fascinating that her line was that everybody's corrupt effectively. Everybody does it. Yeah I don't think it was quite that everyone's corrupt. I I think her view in that was the um, uh, she says that everyone engages in pork barrelling, pork barrelling. words to yeah. that, that that effect, that the practice of pork barrelling, which is... Um, sorry, I think uh, that... You know, yeah, yeah, sorry, I'll have to jump in. I think that's corrupt behaviour, but obviously there's a difference between pork barrelling and corrupt behaviour, apparently, in definition. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so so this was an issue that um, came up in the context of, of another grant, the administering another grant scheme where there had been some criticism in New South Wales around the coalition's um, uh, handling and awarding of funds to certain local councils and whether it had been along political lines. And Gladys Berejiklian was just this very staunch defender of that program and in that defence sort of made these these comments saying, well, you know, Port Farrell is not legal, everyone does it, it's just a sort of an accepted and entrenched part of, of politics. And, and I think she's quite right about that, that it's, you know, it, it is accepted and it is an entrenched part of politics. But I think that what the ICAC investigation and the outcome does show is that it isn't something that's without consequence. Um, you know, I, I, ICAC has drawn perhaps for the first time ever, like a, a very strong line in the sand over the, um, the, the way in which uh, public funds can be used that I think is going to put a lot of politicians in, in both state governments and federal governments on notice about what is within the realms of acceptable and what is not. The element that's very important for you as a journalist was who you were working for when you were doing the investigation. And it tells us an, a reason for why the ABC is a kind of special place, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, look, I mean, obviously, at working for the public broadcaster, you know, you've, you've got to be extremely fair and scrupulous in, in how you do your reporting. Um, and, you know, I'm very lucky to have always felt very supported within that 
organisation to to do difficult stories um, and, you know, to also tell them in a really fair way. I think these stories have withheld the test of, of time and, um, and led to some real life Sort of consequences. Uh, yeah, I was very lucky to be able to do them, and, and I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to, to continue to tell stories at the ABC now. Yeah, because it's it, it could have been the plug could have been pulled. That's what I'm saying. Like they could have thought that it was not worth your while to continue. Uh, well, look, I, I I don't think so. I mean, um, I mean, I guess that's one of the great things about working at the ABC. I've, I've never felt like that. I've always felt really supported. Um, you know, I mean, I think at some other news organisations, perhaps that might have been a, um, a more live fear or, or concern, but um, it was never really any, something that even crossed my mind at all. You do a, a fairly interesting excursion into the look at the differences between how male and female politicians are, are treated in the media. And the reason you do that is because this was part of uh, Gladys Berejiklian's defence strategy, wasn't it? Look, I mean, I think that this was a really challenging issue to, to, to look at and, and explore. I mean, effectively, you know, one of the the arguments that was kind of put forward by, by Gladys Berejiklian was that, you know, she was she cared deeply for Daryl Maguire, she trusted him, and because of that, you know, she just thought that he had he had done the right thing. And it raised some really interesting questions around her agency that I think some, you know, excellent female writers at the time captured exactly why that was kind of problematic and the, the disservice that that did for, for feminism as, as well. Um, I mean, the argument she was making was that even as this incredibly savvy and incredibly impressive political operator, that that she um, she somehow was kind of sort of just blinded by, by by love by this person. That was an argument, and in the in the end, ICAC did not really accept. You know, that it formed the view that. You know, she did turn a blind eye to his behaviour at, at certain points, and that was what led to, to her undoing. But, you know, she had agency. She made choices, and, um, and, and those choices led to, led to these sort of moments. That's not to say, however, that Gladys Berejiklian wasn't treated, you know, unfairly by some sections of, uh, of the media as, as well. And I, I think that, you know, simply because she was a woman, she, she was treated un, unfairly at certain points. You know, some of the, the kind of prurient coverage of her was really quite nauseating as, as well. And I think that, you know, she deserves our sympathy for, for that. But, but it doesn't excuse the kind of the broader questions around her, her conduct that are raised. So I, I sort of tried to just explore some of these issues a little bit because they're, they're kind of difficult, complicated questions that um, um, that I think do require like a, a little bit more thought and, and depth and it was nice to be able to reflect on them. Interestingly enough, the element that made it absolutely impossible for to her to continue was the fact that she was raised on her own pretard because the, uh, the Liberals had uh, come in uh, under the guise of being clean and mean compared to the previous Labor government's uh, uh, very public exposure in the court with the beep. Um, so uh, it was pretty difficult for her to escape uh, the clauses in her own ministerial um, behaviour um, arrangements, right? Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, um, the um, it, it was actually... Mike Baird and his government that introduced these um, kind of additional requirements that said that if if, um, uh, if a minister in New South Wales breached the code of conduct 
and that was a, it was a substantial breach that that was something that ICAC could investigate. Um, uh, so you know this code and, and this code is usually um, created by the premier of the day, and you know when Grace Bridgeclean was premier, she signed off on it. So you know she had this code that her own ministers were required to to abide by um, uh, that was policed by by ICAC, and um, it, you know it, ultimately. It was that very code that um, you know that she herself was required to abide by as um, uh, as well. So um, it's it's kind of this this was one of the ways that um, she sort of became undone because of um, uh, of these conduct requirements that she had set for herself. Well, that goes a little bit back to the whole reflection about female politicians or the whole role of uh, image of women, that they're supposed to be holier than thou. And I was reading it and I was thinking about the Anne Sumner's famous book, you know, Damn Whores or God's Police. And uh, she did a very uh, good um, impersonation of God's Police, really, didn't she? Mm. Um, yeah, it's... Um... I think it's challenging. You know, it's it, it was obvious that um, you know, I think um, a lot of the, the the kind of the the image that Gladys Berejiklian had sort of constrained herself to or, or had created for herself was um, was you know was, was driven by a lot of those those same kind of tropes in in politics in Australia that um, uh, that the, and the way that female politicians are kind of typecast into certain sort of roles and um, and this kind of role that Gladys Berejiklian found herself in was this kind of quiet, um, uh, you know, private person who didn't really have a personal life, was sort of married to the job. Um, and, um, you know, it, it was, um, you know, and, and, and part of the reason that I guess she would have been in that role is because um, of the way that kind of that um, women in Australian politics have been kind of boxed into these these roles and these and these images. So I think you know she certainly deserves our our, our sympathy for that. Um, but but none of that sort of really fundamentally excuses the, the broader questions about her um, her, her, her her conduct. Um, but I think they're important questions for us to sort of think about in um, in how we view our political leaders, how we view our female political leaders. Um, and, you know, and how we can sort of do better from that. Yeah, well, you finish with a, uh, a really interesting um, broad view on what does this mean for ICAC, because ICAC's really significant uh, development in the political landscape, and a little bit of reflecting on uh, what um, Vera Jiklian is expected to do, because, I mean, because she's gone to uh, Optus, uh, and they don't seem to mind having her on their board. Um, but ICAC is the most significant thing that's happened really in the political landscape for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So the, the federal integrity body is, um, you know, is this massive game changer um, that, um, that now exists. And, um, you know, I, th I think there are some lessons for that body in the New South Wales ICAC's investigation into Gladys Berejiklian. I mean, it... It really, its reputation did really suffer because of the length of time it took um, to, to, you know, to, to make findings in that investigation. Um, there were some errors early on in, in sort of the handling of some sensitive information. So there were, um, you know, there were some quite legitimate 
concerns around around ICAC that that, that were raised. Although ultimately, um, you know, it's been found to have acted, you know, in good faith and done the best that it can. Um, uh, so, you know, I think there are some and, and the one of the challenges is it, it's faced really strong political calls in New South Wales to have its wing kind of clipped. So, um, and I think you know one of the concerns is that that you know those kind of conversations could eventually happen, you know, to our, our newly established federal body as, as well. So, um, you know, I, I think the future of the New South Wales ICAC and its federal counterpart, um, you know, are really have been kind of thrown to the forefront um, as this debate has unfolded over the last few years. Um, and I think it'd be really interesting to see what what lessons there are from that and where we go from here. Well, you know, it's a kind of rarefied air uh, world in the sense that it's uh, pol uh, politicians, lawyers, uh, investigative journalists and a whole journalistic pack. Um, where do you think this relates to the general public and our democracy? Have you got a view on that? Look, I, I mean, I, I think that um, this whole, you know, th there are important lessons in this whole saga for um for, for our political institutions, for the way the public views political leaders, um, you know, and, and for journalists as, as well. Um, I think it shows that um, there are, um, you know, our, it doesn't matter how popular a particular political leader is, um, we need to constantly be questioning their integrity and and really be scrutinising their, um, their, their, their conduct. I mean, I think everyone was entirely shocked by what emerged about Gladys Berejiklian because um, she did have such a good reputation. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's always important to keep an open mind about politicians and, um, you know, and and, um, and and their conduct. But but it, I think it's equally important to scrutinise them as, as well. So, um, uh, so, yeah, so there's some valuable lessons for everyone in it. And uh, you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and that was the last piece of a conversation that I had with Paul Farrell about his piece that he wrote for Monash University Press in the National Interest, Gladys, a leader's undoing. Well, the sun is up in the sky
I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. A weak solidarity, Becky team listener, when caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, must be so grateful for the solidarity and watertight arguments he's no colleagues proper. First, Jacinta telling us to vote no cause there's no cause to vote yes cause terra nullius non-land non-people have suffered not one disadvantage from colonisation, have enjoyed the utopian benefits of running water and food. As we said last week, how did they survive those thousands of years without water and food? And then, caring business class Senate aspirant Warren muddying the waters, we presume the former Socialist Party federal president is still in the caring business class party this week. Warren muddied the waters by telling us the disadvantage Jacinta said doesn't exist can only be addressed by voting not to recognise the terra nullius non-land non-people and by denying them a voice. Vote no the road to a treaty with people we don't recognise and don't want to hear. Cheering poor Pete up no end, because a major plank in the no argument, if their obfuscation and confusion could be deemed argument, is a yes vote will lead to unforeseen disasters like a treaty. Could this be yet another case of the right hand not knowing what the right hand is doing? There's always something to upset the poor, caring employers. Great contribution to social cohesion, isn't there? This time, this socialist threat to make wage theft a jailable offence. See, the new law would sit beside, or as caring employers say, overlap a number of state laws, and they're concerned this could mean they would get caught by different laws with different penalties, cop two penalties for the same crime. As true blue Aussie Chamber of Prophet Supremo Andrew McKill of the Unions, Andrew, a wonderful friend of working people, as Andrew said, employers already face severe challenges managing complex workplace obligations. Poor dears, it's so difficult, isn't it? But we must ask, why are they so worried? Why are caring employers so worried about wage theft, or more correctly, about being sprung for wage theft? After all, they'd only get nabbed anyway if they stole from their workers for wage theft. And we know no caring employer has ever underpaid a worker. Oh, well, other but OK, OK, there's um, been quite a bit of inadvertent underpayment, but if they need reassurance... We reckon it's long odds any caring employer ever seeing the inside of a cell. 
Don't forget those industrial manslaughter laws that also so concerned poor caring employers. And despite lots of death and injury in the workplace, no caring employer has yet got anywhere near a prison cell. Prison cells are for real criminals, not workplace murderers. And not great corporate citizens like our very own big true blue Aussie BHP, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, to which I must give a grovelling and sincere apology, because in recent weeks we've been a, a bit critical of the big true blue Aussie's objections to this same work, same pay legislation. Its argument that it will cost it billions, the only logical explanation for that figure we've argued is that's what they're underpaying or ripping off workers now. How wrong could we be? It turns out bloody huge P's only concern is workers. As it argued this week, those billions it will have to pay its workforce would reduce the dividends it pays to mums and dads shareholders, to the workers whose super funds are invested in bloody huge. See? Purely altruistic, selfish, selfish, underpaid workers effectively stealing the food from the mouths of mums and dads and other workers. It's a disgrace. Our conservative reading of the bill is it will force us to pay cheaper staff hired through subsidiaries the same as other employees. What? Two workers doing the same job, receiving the same pay? And here we thought they were ripping workers off. Their sole concern, those very workers. Two workers side by side doing the same work, but obviously one of them is cheaper. And here's a government, a socialist government, trying to change all that by not recognising that there are cheap people. The big troubler was he knows that. So sincere apologies for ever suggesting you're ripping workers off. One amendment bloody huge P could agree to would be to reduce the pay of the not-so-cheap, it's relative, but not-so-cheap worker, to the same work, same pay of the cheaper worker. There. Caring employers could agree with that, and problem solved. Like uh, New Hope, huge, good, beautiful, don't be afraid of it, coal behemoth. Interesting, New Hope's hope is that coal pollution will last forever, or as long as the earth gasps through that pollution, and the earth hopes coal pollution will cease immediately. Anyway, it also pay says same work, same pay would be a disaster. Quite damaging for the industry, Supremo Rob Bash Up the Planet put it. Interesting opening to that report. New Hope Chief Executive Rob Bash Up the Planet says the Albanese government's same job, same pay agenda threatens to drive the wrong outcomes and stymie investment as he delivered a record profit. Poor Rob. There's always a fly in paradise, isn't there? Assuaged by New Hope made more profit in the past two years than in the previous 16 years combined. Congratulations. And it's investing in more and more coal mines and predicts a great future for coal, if not for the planet. No, no, that's unfair, because all the concerned and responsible fossil behemoths announcing record profits while denouncing any greedy government super-duper of seed profits tax as a crushing disaster are investing in more and more coal and gas and oil, while asserting their commitment to net-zero emissions. 
showing that the miraculous transmission from coal and gas and oil is coal and gas and oil. And if we had just the odd doubt, no, our government also agree as they approve more and more fossils and they too are committed to net zero emissions uh, with a little help from planting a tree or two in Java. From the moment Carlton survived that last minute earning a preliminary final in Brisbane, the airline which used to be our airline discovered Oh goodness, fares to Brisbane are far too low. They need to be several hundreds of dollars higher. With the airline which used to be chairperson making life that little bit more difficult, well, several hundred dollars more difficult for footy supporters, and the AFL's chairperson of a board which says it wants to make getting to the game as easy and as inexpensive as possible, the airline which used to be chairperson Richard Goiter, and the AFL chairperson Richard Goiter. Oh, what a coincidence. Obviously, when it's down to rip-off versus back your supporters, rip-off wins hands down. Nonetheless, AFL CEO Gil McClockdam said, No, no, we do care about those supporters, but Richard's role at the airline, which used to be, is different to Richard's role at the AFL. <laughs> As if we had noticed. Richard did pick up the Modesty of the Week award when an ABC interviewer popped a few questions about the odd scandal at the airline which used to be and loud calls for Richard to resign. He had wide support to stay and get the job done, Richard assured us, whatever the job is. One problem, the 1,683 workers who don't have a job. And then, true modesty, I am the best person for the job. Which, if true speaks wonders for the pool of capitalist executive talent. There's no one better? Oh, and Richard said he couldn't comment on matters before the courts. Other than the airline which used to be never, never charged exorbitant fares for no service. A matter I had thought was before the courts, but Richard would never mislead us, so when people were charged the exorbitant fare, they would have paid a service fee of sorts, and being charged was a service, so they received a service. It's just that the airline which used to be had not the slightest intention of flying them anywhere. To a man whose intentions have been very clear for decades... So Lord Rupert of Wapping has stepped aside from chair to chair emeritus of Newsbury Limited and Facts Distorted, replaced by his scion, Lockie. Won't that make a difference? Think we'll leave our opinion of Lord Rupert until he drops off this mortal, given the severe limitations of our defamation laws. Other than to say, however many decades it is, the world would be a better place if he'd retired that many decades ago. Still, finally, the value of Newsbury Limited and other news media was proven down at the high-rise public housing towers this week when residents were able to read and hear that their homes were about to be demolished, save the government having to deliver the news. But sadly, that fly-in-paradise metaphor applies again, as the parallel announcement of thousands of new government-funded homes had one real estate agent, that most prestigious and admired of professions, Barry Plant the Prophets, lamenting the proposal, could flood some areas with housing supply and dampen capital gains and investment returns. 
Oh, God, how awful. If it's any consolation, we can assure Barry in the end there won't be one publicly funded residence that is actually public housing. Hope that makes him feel better. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. <laughs> there you go. Uh, that was This is the Week That Was. We're going to go straight on to uh, the Extinction Rebellion uh, rally that was held on Friday the 15th of September. It was against seismic blasting in the Otway Basin. This is what they had to say. Thank you all guys for coming here. And obviously you know why we're here. We're Extinction Rebellion with the allies from the coast. My name's Kat. And I'm, I'm here because basically we're, we're, we're pretty enraged. We're enraged that, you know, this late in this planet-saving game, we are here, we have to be here to talk about looking for more gas when it's plain that our future depends on not using any of that gas. So this goes from being really a bloody mad thing to a really bad thing when looking for that gas is completely damaging and devastating to all marine life from the tiniest zooplankton to the to the mightiest whale there is absolutely no reason at this stage in our planet saving game we the oceans are already boiling for us to be looking for something that is going to kill us so that's why we're here and we're here despite the rage we're also here with some hope because of um the, uh, the resistance that is, that is being shown by the coastal communities, we have um, people from the coastal communities here, both um, Gunditjmara coming, uh, who are going to meet us halfway uh, along the road, and the people from uh, Warrnambool and the Otways through the Ocean Collective. Okay, I'll pass you over to our MC, who is Helen. Thank you for being here today. This is a really important issue. Um, but first, before we go any further, I'm going to ask Tony, TG, to come and to do the acknowledgement of country. I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting, gathering on the land of the Wurundjeri people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that will earn that great honour in the future. We're meeting on stolen land, land that was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. They, we can learn so much from them, the way they nurtured their land and their communities before it was stolen from them. And if it, that ancient wisdom is what is going to a big help in us as we face up to the climate crisis. We can't have hope to have justice, climate justice, until we have justice for our First Nations brothers and sisters. Yep, that's it. Thank you so much, Tony. We're here in support of the Southern Ocean Protection Embassy Collective, SOPEC. Ocean, the Otway Climate Emergency Action Network, First Nations people and allies in their fight to protect sacred sea country. Um, we're here today, which is day one of three days of worldwide action under the umbrella of global fight to end fossil fuels. And we're here to protest against a dangerous proposal to conduct seismic surveys in the Otway Basin. 
that continuous bombardment, if it goes ahead, is incredibly damaging, disruptive and destructive. And as Kat has said, I mean, it's for absolutely no sound reason to be prospecting for for fossil fuels in a time of uh, a climate emergency is beyond comprehension. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to, um, we are going to the State Library, but first we're going past the offices of NOPSEMA. Now, NOPSEMA is the National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environment Management Authority. It's in William Street, and so we're going to stop on the way there because NOPSEMA is the agency that will make the decision on behalf of the federal government as to whether or not this proposed proposal to seismic blast, this vast amount of, uh, of ocean will go ahead. Stop seismic blasting! Stop seismic blasting! Stop seismic blasting! Stop seismic blasting! No more gas, no more oil! National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environment Management Authority and they're appointed by the federal government <laughs> to regulate all the gas and oil exploration and processing that goes on offshore from Australia. Until 2012 they were actually called NOPSA. They were the National Offshore Petroleum Safety Authority. And the Gillard government of the time decided to shift the environmental protection of our ocean over to a health and safety organisation called NOPSA, and there they became NOPSEMA. That's bonkers. So it took it out of the hands of the environment minister and put our environment in the hands of the resources minister. As you do. That'll work. That's bonkers, Tony. <laughs> And then, by 2014, there was another hiccup. The EPBC Act, which is the Environment Protection Biodiversity Act. And there's a clause in there, the precautionary clause, where if you don't know how much harm you are going to impose on the environment, then you are 
take a precautionary principle and you don't do it, which is the case for seismic blasting. We know it harms, but we don't know to what degree it does. So they made another alteration to expedite um, approvals and to incentivize more gas and oil exploration. They allowed Noxema to develop a principle called the LR, as low as reasonably practical, which is just a joke. So any creature that comes under the EPBC Act, and if they are in the offshore environment and they could be impacted by the gas and oil industry, they come under the LR, which means there's a bit of a measurement. If it costs a real lot to avoid that possible damage, you don't have to do it. It's actually weighed up against the value of how much it's going to cost that gas and oil company, that exploration company. So it is, it's just to streamline and incentivise the gas and oil industry. But before we march on, I want to tell you who I think the real bad guys are. NOPSEMA are working within policy, they're working within the rules. There's actually some good people in this mob. It's NOPTA the National Offshore Titles Administrator that comes under Madeleine King, under the Resources Industry and Research. They are the ones that are releasing these titles, allowing these permits. They are loading the gun and firing it, and NOPSEMA are actually trying to deal with the fallout. So we've got to make it known that we're not happy about seismic blasting. This has to change at a political level as well. I think that's all I've got to tell you. Um, yeah, that'll do. Thank you. Thanks very much, Lisa. And now I'd like to ask Tony to come back up and to say a few more words. Tony Gleason. Thanks, Helen. Angelisa. Right, so it's, yes, another attack on democracy in Australia. These, I think there were, correct me if I'm wrong, Lisa, but there were thousands of submissions went in. 30,000. So we'll see uh, just exactly how much of a control the fossil fuel psychopaths have on Nopsema when they make their decision, which is imminent. It's so good to see so many people here today. And I reckon we've probably got four, gen four different generations. And if you look back through history, that, that is really rare for that to happen. It's something we've got to build on. Right? We all share the atmosphere and we've got to share it up. We've got to look after it together. And it's going to take some looking after because the fossil fuel psychopaths aren't used to being told no. They, they knew 50, at least 50 years ago the damage that they would cause if they continued to ply their toxic products. Right? They had a choice then to stop doing that and to transition. They chose not to. They bought scientists to, say, to create doubt, 
and left a lot of people thinking that there was a debate around this. Right? But the science is screaming out to us right now, to all of us, that all fossil fuels have got to stay in the ground. So why the hell would, would we use a destructive method to try and find if we've got gas when we can't use it? Right? On this, there are two th we have every single thing we need. Two things are lacking. One is political will, right? Our politicians have to, be, have to be told that it's not okay for them to continue to approve fossil fuel projects, right? So it's the political will is lacking. The second thing is the number of people who are prepared to stand up to change that, that political will. And that is what today is all about. And we'll be doing it next week probably and continue to do it until sanity prevails. Because right now, we've got a bunch of psychopaths who are leading us over a cliff. And it doesn't have to be like that. And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn, we're actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We're coming to the end of the program, but we've got Sean Sinclair from Coalition Against Racism and Fascism on the line. G'day, Sean. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Now, you're today you've got an action, haven't you? Can you tell my listeners about what's happening today? Yeah, of course. So for those who don't know, there's a group of basically Nazis who have been organising in Melbourne. They're called the NSN and they have a gym out in Sunshine West that they've been using kind of as their headquarters to organise and build out of. And so as part of CAF, we've been having kind of an ongoing campaign against this group of Nazis. And today we'll be getting hundreds of people out to Sunshine West to march on the gym, basically, and demand that these Nazis are not welcome or permitted to keep building in Melbourne, which is a left-wing city. And it's been going on, this campaign's been going for a while, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we discovered the basically presence of these Nazis in the gym. It was uncovered Christmas Eve last year. And since then, we've had several rallies against them, uh, a couple in Sunshine and also a couple counter rallies, such as the one where they showed up alongside the transphobe Posey Parker on the steps of Parliament, which I think is the moment many people became aware of their presence. Uh, and then a later protest where they were on the steps of Parliament basically opposing uh, immigration in this country. So, yeah, we've had quite a, a long-running campaign, uh, but it's good that it's got going support still, and I think we can really see a bit of momentum around the campaign against them now. Yeah, so uh, where do people gather and uh, what can people expect? Yeah, so we'll be meeting a bit away from the gym just so everyone can gather safely. Uh, it's Sunshine West IGA, so there's a bit of a car park. Uh, there's public transport there, so we figured that's a safe place for everyone to gather, and we'll be meeting there at 2pm before we all uh, head to the gym. I mean, 
Yeah, expectations is it will probably be a very big, lively rally. Uh, it'll probably have, yeah, a few hundred people at least, although I have ex- every expectation it'll be bigger. Uh, and it'll be a march to the gym, a march through the streets of sunshine, which is important because as much as we want to oppose this group of Nazis, we also want to show that the migrants and refugees uh, that live in sunshine uh, are welcome and that they're not you know, a minority, they're not on their own. There's actually hundreds and thousands of people that support them and oppose the Nazis in their community. Uh, so you've been getting feedback from the community out in West Sunshine about this particular issue? Yeah, we have. Uh, that's been, you know, messages, people coming up and talking to us, but also at the last rally where we, we did a similar thing marching through the streets, there were people, you know, just coming out on their front lawns and, and showing support and, yeah, shouting that they're with us and, yeah, glad that we're out there. Yeah, because it's pretty shocking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, we, we say that there are Nazis in sunshine and part of it is, wait, really? Is this actually something that is happening now in Melbourne? Because it can seem so detached from everything. But I think it is also part of a broader kind of racism in this country that's uh, kind of been building lately. And so I think people see it in that context and understand that it's important to oppose it. But yeah, definitely shocking. Yeah, because uh, as we've uh, observed, uh, splinter groups of this sort target uh, groups of people that they believe are vulnerable and that's in particular case has been lately has been this transphobia uh, targeting of trans people uh, which is you know obnoxious. Yeah yeah totally I mean you know their bigotry manifests in all kinds of ways and uh, there's all kinds of groups that they target but yeah trans oppression is is border in this country and I think they've kind of hit on that as something to to grow around and orient to which yeah we definitely should oppose wherever it comes up. So can you let my listeners know again where where to go and uh, what time and uh, the rest of it okay? Yeah totally it's at Sunshine West IGA Uh, there'll be a car park a bus and we'll be meeting at 2pm gathering there for a little bit before heading off together so if people want the details are on our social media if uh, they want to double check that but yeah Sunshine West IGA at 2 and quickly before you go if people are interested in CAF Coalition Against Racism and Fascism yeah yeah our campaign so the campaign against racism and fascism are is a broader thing against racism in this country. We've organised uh, against the Reclaim Australia movement a few years ago for refugee rights, and now our main focus is opposing these Nazis. But if people want to get more involved, we have, yeah, sign-up uh, links on our social media and our website. We also have regular organising meetings. Basically, anyone who wants to, yeah, oppose fascism and racism in this country should consider getting involved and helping us build for a potential next rally against these Nazis but also the ongoing campaign. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Sean. All good. Have a good one. Yeah, and that was Sean. She's from uh, CAF, Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Uh, those ornery num- letters, I got the uh, number, the, uh, the C wrong, but now we know what it is. It's campaign and it's CAF.
that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Uh, we uh, listened to a very sobering uh, piece by Dr. Jinoyini Gondara. Uh, I will put the information about his statement up on the podcast. Very important person within uh, our political framework uh, is Dr. Uh, Gondara, uh, a very important person. Uh, we're... Uh, and uh, you will be able to hear what he has to say and read his statement. Uh, he is the uh, protagonist in a very important film called Law of the Land, which will be um, streamed uh, soon. I think it's either October, November this year. So keep an eye out for it if you haven't seen it. Very important. The filmmaker is Sinan Saban, S I N E M. S-A-B-A-N, and she's from Generation Media. Uh, after that, we uh, talked to Paul Farrell, uh, ABC journalist, about his uh, piece in the National Interest, Monash University Press, if you want to get a copy, Gladys, a leader's undoing. Very important stuff in relation to anti-corruption um, methodologies within this country. Uh, we followed that with uh, following Extinction Rebellion through the streets, uh, with uh, a, a message about not no seismic blasting in the Otway Basin. And, oh, actually before that, this is the week that was. Can't forget Kevin. Uh, tune in next week. We'll be here on Saturday, uh, hopefully, touch wood. And uh, we'll go out with... Um, oh, this is a, a very... Uh, well, this is uh, sunshine on a runny, rainy day, Christine... Let's hope it's not a rainy day in sunshine this afternoon. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents.
been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.